Welcome back to the Sun Also Rises podcast here on KPCG. In today's episode, we're going to talk about building bridges. The first couple of stories here are about actual physical bridges being built. And then in the last segment, we'll have a guest come on to tell us an especially fascinating story about a different kind of bridge building. So I hope you'll stick around for that a little later. But I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about the rainforests in northeast India. In the part of India near the border with Bangladesh is the state of Meghalaya. And the rainforests there are among the very wettest places on the planet. In fact, one village called Masaram holds the title of being the wettest place on earth. Normally we talk about rainfall in inches. Here in Edmond, Oklahoma, for example, we get 33 inches of rainfall every year on average. That's just a little bit lower than the national average in the U.S., which is 37 inches per year. But compared to the village of Masaram, that's nothing. In Masaram, it really doesn't make sense to even discuss rainfall in terms of inches because they get 39 feet of rain every year on average. I mean, I guess you could say that in inches if you wanted to, but it's 467 inches of rain. That's about 14 times more than we get here in Edmond. So it's a really, really wet place. The wettest on earth. But this lushly forested area is not just wet, it's also very, very mountainous. And the combination of the mountains and this staggering amount of rainfall means that during the monsoon season, from June to September, the streams and rivers flowing through the deep valleys become raging torrents of water. The people that live there, they're called the Kasai, They used to build huge and very intricate bridges out of bamboo so that they could get across those torrential rivers. But the bamboo structures always washed away long before monsoon season ended. There was just too much rain and too much erosion, so the bridges couldn't last. And it left the villagers stranded during some very difficult times. Occasionally, the villagers in the area would would really bear down and they would build the strongest and most elaborate bamboo bridges possible in those circumstances. And every once in a while, one of them would make it through a monsoon season without being washed away. But then, because of all the rainfall in that area, 39 feet per year, the bridge would quickly rot. And and once again, the villagers would be stranded. So even the most high-quality bridges were never really viable for more than one season. And it took a huge toll on the people of Masinram and the other parts of Magalia. But a couple of hundred years ago, some of the families in the area started working on a very innovative solution to this persistent problem. At the center of this remarkable solution is the Indian rubber tree. In this region, Indian rubber trees grow in abundance, and they have some unusual properties. They have the usual set of roots at the base of the trunk, like most every species of tree does, but the Indian rubber tree also produces a series of secondary roots from higher up on the trunk. And these roots are incredibly durable, and they can grow to be very long. So the solution that the villagers came up with was to find a rubber tree near a river that they needed to cross, and then take some of the roots from its secondary set 
and they would kind of dig those roots up from where they'd gone into the soil. And then they would put the root inside of a hollowed out piece of cane, almost like a pipe made out of wood. So by sliding the root through the middle of the cane, they could point the root in the direction that they wanted and prevent it from growing down into the soil. So they would use the hollow pieces of cane as kind of a guidance system to make the roots grow all the way across the river. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It takes years and years for each of the roots to grow all the way across any given river. In many cases, it takes about 20 years before the tip of a root reached the other side of the river. And it takes a lot of work by the people to keep guiding it there through those hollowed out pieces of cane, even when the monsoons came. Even when the floods raged through year after year, the people would have to carefully keep on guiding each root until it could grow long enough to reach the other bank. But then once it gets there, to the bank on the other side of the river, the villagers would let that root finally grow into the soil. That's what it had been wanting to do for so long. So they would do this with several roots at a time, And when the tips of the roots reached the other side, they would grow down into the soil. And then they could get more of the roots to grow onto the ones that were spanning the river. And then more and more. And eventually, they would have a strong web of tangled up roots stretching out from one side of the river to the other. After a period of 20 or 30 years, a tangled up web of roots would have become thick enough and strong enough to be a bridge, a real bridge, strong and sturdy enough for people to walk across the river, even in the times of those torrential monsoons. In the last couple of hundred years, since the villagers learned this incredible technique, they've built dozens and dozens of these bridges. Some of them are more than 150 feet long, and some are large enough to let 40 or 50 people cross over them at one time. A few of the most famous bridges are even double-deckers with two different parallel spans going across the river. And they're scattered all along the lush, dense valleys of that region. And these bridges do not wash away. The roots have a way of preventing a lot of erosion, so they keep the soil there and they keep the foundations solid. And the fascinating thing about these bridges is that they are living. Most things that men make slowly deteriorate. Our bridges that we make out of concrete and steel require major maintenance and rebuilding from time to time, or else they will collapse. But Meghalaya's root bridges only grow stronger with each passing year. Eventually, of course, the rubber trees die and the the bridges begin to decay, But those trees live a long time, and for the first three or four hundred years, these living bridges just keep on growing stronger and thicker with each passing season. And when the monsoons come, these living bridges bend and sway a little bit in the floodwaters, but they don't wash away. They stand firm and allow the people of Masinram and the other parts of Magalia to cross from one bank to the other and carry on with their lives. 
One other fascinating aspect of these living bridges is that since they take so long to become viable and usable, the men who start to build one of them have no guarantee that they will live long enough to ever be able to walk across it. In many cases, they know that the bridge they're building will not be for themselves and for their own generation, but for future generations. And that's a somewhat unusual vision for people to have. There's an old proverb from ancient Greece that says, A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they'll never sit in. I've always thought that was a a powerful bit of wisdom there because it's talking about people who work for the future. They labor for a time that they know they themselves will not live long enough to see. Right now, so many modern governments are doing just the opposite. So many nations recklessly borrow and recklessly spend money in order for the current generation to be more comfortable. And they know that they're essentially robbing from the next generation, but they they don't seem to care. They figure that they won't be there to suffer from the consequences of their actions, so they go right on recklessly borrowing and spending. It's different with these villagers in Magalia. They work to improve the lives of the next generation. They labor to improve the land that they inherited from their parents and to hand it off to their children in a condition better than they had received it in. And I think that's a really inspiring example, and it's one that we can all learn something from. Well, we're going to bring our guest on in just a moment to tell about a different type of bridge building. But before that, I just wanted to tell you very briefly about a remarkable bridge design that has recently been proposed in China. In China, just like in the United States, they drive on the right side of the road. But Hong Kong is different. For many years, Hong Kong was under the rule of the British Empire, and the British drive on the left side of the road. And Hong Kong has stuck to that left side driving for all of their roads. And in most cases, that's fine. If you're in mainland China, you drive on the right, and if you're on the island of Hong Kong, you drive on the left, no problem. But what about a bridge connecting the two. How can you prevent cars driving from China to Hong Kong or from Hong Kong to China from ending up in the wrong lane and crashing into each other? Well, some Dutch architects have proposed a brilliant solution, very appropriately called the Flipper Bridge. This bridge design does just what the name says. It flips traffic around. And it does that in a safe and ingenious way, without making any of the traffic stop or even slow down. This is a a six-lane bridge, so you have three lanes heading north on one side and three lanes heading south on the other. And it actually splits the two sides apart into two different ribbons, and then it uses a figure-eight shape to run the southbound side under the northbound side, And then it funnels the cars that were traveling on the left to the right. And those that were traveling on the right, heading south from China, are suddenly and safely on the left side. Just in time to enter Hong Kong, where all the traffic travels on the left. At this point, it's just a proposal. 
It has not yet been built, but I hope they decide to go through with it because it's a brilliant design. When we come back, we'll finally bring on our guest to continue the discussion about building bridges and to tell us what I think is the most inspiring and interesting of these stories. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG. We'll be right back. Listening to The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG. In today's episode, we're talking about building bridges. In the first half, we looked at some literal, physical bridges. But for this last segment, we're going to discuss a different kind of bridge building. This next story takes place partly in Egypt. And to walk us through this fascinating account, we have a special guest on the show today. This is a man who writes prolifically for the PCOG.org website, and also for a publication called The Philadelphian. He's a good friend of mine. His name is Grant Turgeon. Thank you for being on the show today, Grant. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I know that you've done a lot of research into this uh, fascinating bridge-building story, Grant, so I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you share this with our listeners. All right, thank you. Nearly 40 years ago, Egypt and Israel built the greatest diplomatic bridge in history. This bold claim may surprise you, considering that the entire Arab world's virulent hatred is directed toward the Jews today. Specifically, the Muslim Brotherhood is on the rise in Egypt, and they are militantly against the Jews. Maybe you believe the Arab-Jew conflict dates back to 1948, when the United Nations endorsed the creation of a small Jewish state occupying a narrow strip of land just east of the Mediterranean Sea. A league of five Arab armies, including Egypt's, then attacked Israel but lost decisively. However, the Arab-Jew conflict extends way beyond 1948, back to the great biblical patriarch Abraham. Both the Jews and the Arabs acknowledge their common ancestry from this great patriarch. This great patriarch lived thousands of years before Jesus Christ. So, this conflict has lasted for thousands of years. The military clash in 1948 only exacerbated the tenuous relationship between Egypt and Israel. Thus, pundits and analysts suppose that these two nations could never dwell in peace. It was into this hostile climate that Anwar Sadat, was elected the third president of Egypt on October 15, 1970. At first, prospects of improved ties with Israel under Sadat's rule seemed unlikely. Sadat led Egypt against the Jews in the Yom Kippur War of 1973 in an attempt to regain the Sinai Peninsula from Israel. He hated the Jews, just like many of his Egyptian brothers and ancestors. But before long, he changed his mind. To the shock and outrage of the Arab world, Anwar Sadat began to work toward peace with his nation's mortal enemy. After four bloody wars between Israel and Egypt in 30 years, the Egyptian president had seen all the massacres he could handle. Following a meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin 
and United States President Jimmy Carter at the Camp David Accords, Sadat became the first Egyptian leader ever to make the short trip to Israel. In a speech before the Israeli Knesset on November 20, 1977, Sadat declared peace, not war, like maybe the entire world had been expecting. During his speech, Sadat said, If I said that I wanted to save all the Arab people, the horrors of shocking and destructive wars, I most sincerely declare before you that I have the same feelings and bear the same responsibility towards all and every man on earth, and certainly towards the Israeli people. Any life lost in war is a human life, irrespective of its being that of an Israeli or an Arab. A wife who becomes a widow is a human being entitled to a happy family life, whether she be an Arab or an Israeli. Innocent children who are deprived of the care and compassion of their parents are ours, be they living on Arab or Israeli land. They command our top responsibility to afford them a comfortable life today and tomorrow. For the sake of them all, for the safeguard of the lives of all our sons and brothers, for affording our communities the opportunity to work for the progress and happiness of man and his right to a dignified life, for our responsibilities before the generations to come, for a smile on the face of every child born on our land, for all that, I have taken my decision to come to you, despite all hazards, to deliver my address. The late Worldwide Church of God founder and unofficial ambassador for world peace, Herbert W. Armstrong, called Sadat's speech the most sensational overture toward international peace made by any head of state in our time. This speech marked the beginning of a diplomatic bridge between Egypt and Israel. The resultant Egypt-Israel peace treaty guaranteed peace for the next 30 years and also won Sadat the Nobel Peace Prize. He was the first ever Muslim leader to be awarded this prize. Begin, the Israeli leader, did his part by returning the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. Sadat even laid out plans for a world peace center where Jews, Christians, and Muslims could meet in harmony at the base of Mount Sinai, the Mountain of God, as it is called. Anwar Sadat sacrificed everything to make his far-fetched goal a joyous reality. And it worked, but it cost him dearly. Philadelphia Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote in his booklet, The Way of Peace Restored Momentarily. On October 6, 1981, Egypt was having its annual victory parade to celebrate Egypt's crossing of the Suez Canal in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. President Sadat was there. He was offered military escort, but he refused. He said, No, I don't need it, and I don't want it. These are my sons. His enemies including members of the Muslim Brotherhood, the very organization getting control of Egypt today knew this, and they had it all carefully planned. Some Egyptian Air Force Mirage jets flew down very low, and they were so loud it, it, it was difficult to hear anything. At that moment, a group of men, led by one of Sadat's own lieutenants, jumped out of one of the military trucks. The lieutenant rather than saluting his president, threw three grenades at him, and the other men fired assault rifles. 
Within hours, the wounded Sadat was pronounced dead. It was all professionally planned and precisely timed. Mr. Sadat should have known better, but apparently he didn't have such loyal sons as he thought. Even though Sadat's vision of world peace never materialized, his example stands as a powerful witness to this war-torn world. Anwar Sadat was the architect of a diplomatic bridge that united Egypt and Israel for 30 years, the greatest such bridge in human history. Well, that is a really powerful account there, Grant. Um, it's a rare time when bridge building and diplomacy actually worked. That's a, it's an extremely rare outcome in this world. And even though it only lasted a short time, the history still leaves us with a very inspiring example. I wanted to ask you a little more about uh, the booklet that you mentioned, The Way of Peace Restored Momentarily. I guess that was your primary source for, for yes, researching this. Right. And uh, what, what else can you tell us about that? Well, it really is a, a strong booklet that just shows um, a small example of peace on this earth and, and just the, the hope that it provides for a much brighter future. Even as we see um, instances like Rwanda where overnight uh, the president's plane is shot down and uh, tribes on opposite sides are just massacring each other. And then you see these people who have a, a, a disagreement that goes back 4,000 years, 6,000 years almost. Yeah. And, and yet for 30 years in their history, they were able to put all that aside for the betterment of both of their peoples. It really does seem like uh, Sadat especially was a rare individual to say, you know what, we're going to take this ancient rivalry, just this age-old dispute between our peoples, and I want to put an end to it. I want to build a bridge instead of perpetuating this war and this conflict that's been happening for so long. Right, and really when you're put in that situation and you've seen your, your people go through four wars in 30 years and pretty much get smashed every time there's only two ways you can respond and the natural way would be to have anger toward those people and right. hate them the rest of your life or uh, the inspired way of thinking about it is well there has to be a way of peace because clearly what we're doing right now is not working there has to be a solution to this yes well i i sure do appreciate you coming on the show today to to share that with us um and i also wanted to tell the listeners that that booklet the Way of Peace Restored Momentarily is one that we would like to send you a free copy of. It tells all about this inspiring account that Grant just shared with us, and it draws some very powerful lessons about the significance of what happened there. So I hope you'll order a free copy of this booklet. All you have to do is go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab there, and you'll see it in the list. It's absolutely free. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we are coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises on KPCG. You can hear us at 101.3 on the FM dial here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and the live stream is available anywhere in the world if you just type kpcg.fm into your internet browser. We really appreciate you listening today, and we hope that you'll give us your feedback and your comments. Just email tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank Grant Turgeon for coming on the show today and also the KPCG operations manager, Dwight Falk, and the production assistant, Abraham Blondeau. And I'll leave you with some words from the American writer, Ronald D. White. There are the ones who build bridges, 
And then there are the people who walk across the bridges as though they built them. The bridge builders are few and far between. Thank you again, and please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of The Sun Also Rises.